Turn with me again this morning to Mark chapter 4. Mark chapter 4, read verses 35 uh, through the end of the chapter here. This is God's holy and foul word, so give careful attention as it's read this morning. On that day when evening came, he said to them, Let us go to the other side. Leaving the crowd, they took him along with them in the boat, just as he was, and other boats were with him. And there arose a fierce gale of wind, and the waves were breaking over the boat so much that the boat was already filling up. Jesus himself was in the stern, asleep on the cushion. And they woke him and said to him, Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? And he got up and rebuked the wind and said to the sea, Hush, be still. And the wind died down and it became perfectly calm. And he said to them, Why are you afraid? Do you still have no faith? They became very much afraid and said to one another, Who then is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? Well, the apostles, along with Mark and Luke, with whom they shared their eyewitness accounts, have given us what we call the Gospels, these accounts of Jesus' life and ministry. And one of the best arguments for the fact that the apostles didn't just make these stories up, and there are many good reasons for that, but one of the best is that um, even though the apostles figure prominently in these stories, they often don't look good. Right? And that's not the case with uh, leaders and, and heroes of, of other religions. There doesn't seem to be really any evidence that the Buddha, for example, whoever he was, um, really had any flaws or did anything wrong. The same is true for the, the founder of the Sikh religion, uh, Guru Nanak. He's, he's held up as a, uh, an example, uh, an exemplary person in every way. Um, this is, uh, it applies really to Muhammad as well. It's, it's generally taught that Muhammad was, um, was sinless. And, and even where it's debated, some people say, well, maybe he made some human mistakes, but they don't rise to the level of, of sin, of really doing, doing wrong. Well, there can't be any, any kind of debate like that about um, key characters in the Bible, writers of the Bible. Uh, about the disciples, um, that they were weak and flawed and sinful. That certainly holds for the disciples. We often find them in the Gospels giving the wrong answer. We find them arguing with each other about which one of them is the best. Or we find Jesus um, highlighting their lack of faith. And that's the case here in this story. The climax of this story here, Jesus says, how do you have no faith? And these, these many examples of these things, the disciples are not to shame the disciples, but rather highlights Jesus' patient and gracious discipling them. How he, he granted them faith and tested their faith and saw them come to a greater uh, and more mature faith uh, over time. I think maybe each of us should shudder to think what, what such an honest biography would, um, would reveal of our lives in terms of, of faithlessness. Um, how many times would Jesus have said to you, where is your faith? Why are you afraid? Uh, ask these questions that he did of his disciples. And yet, uh, in that, our lives as well are a testimony to his patient, sanctifying grace toward us, um, bringing us through tests of faith to teach us uh, more firmly to trust and know uh, who he is. So the disciples faced here 
in this story an understandably terrifying situation, yet they were, clearly they were to know uh, that Jesus was with them, that he was sovereign uh, over this. And so the, the simple point that I want you to take away this morning is that you would know that whatever you face, uh, that Jesus is with you, um, that he faces it with you. Um, let's consider first, as you look at the first point in your outline there in the, in the bulletin, um, just this, this story and what led up to Jesus sort of rebuking questions of his disciples here. It's a familiar and, and simple uh, story in many ways. Um, in, in verse 35, Jesus says, let us go to the other side. Um, this is the other side of the lake, what we call the Sea of Galilee. Uh, Luke's accounts call it, the, uh, call it Gennesaret. Um, today it's called uh, Lake Kinneret. There's there have been a lot of names for it. The Sea of Galilee is what we most commonly call it. Uh, but I just want you to note here that it was Jesus' initiative that took them out onto the lake uh, that day. Uh, generally, when the scene changes in the Gospels, they're in a different place. The Gospel writers just say, then they were here, then they went there. But it, they, they make note here, uh, Mark and Luke, that, that this is Jesus' initiative to take them out onto the lake um, into, this, into this trial. Verse 38, we're told what Jesus was doing out on the lake, uh, that he was down in the stern asleep on the cushion. This is the first thing that, that Matthew and Luke in their accounts tell us. Uh, it seems like this is what Jesus did as soon as they went out on the boat. Uh, he went to sleep. Um, uh, Mark tells us this is the same day, verse 35, same day as what we've been reading, Jesus teaching in parables and ministering to crowds that were pressing all around him, and, and it seems perhaps Jesus is exhausted. And uh, he went to sleep on the boat. Uh, it, Mark says here he went to sleep on the cushion. Gives the impression maybe this was... It was commonly a place to sleep uh, in boats like this. Um, so Jesus is sleeping, but in verse 37, Mark tells us, There arose a fierce gale of wind, and the waves were breaking over the boat. Um, the most interesting uh, geographical feature of, of the Sea of Galilee is that it's 700 feet below sea level. Uh, so I, I grew up about 700 feet above sea level. This is 700 feet below sea level, and yet there, there are large hills and even mountains right around the Sea of Galilee. Mount Hermon uh, is 10,000 feet above sea level, and so you have this cool air that rushes down off the mountains and mixes with hot, humid air over the Sea of Galilee uh, way below, and uh, strong storms can uh, apparently, even today, to this day, um, come up very quickly. So verse 37 goes on to tell us the boat's taking on water. Uh, it's, it's filling up uh, in, in some way. And, and the disciples' response is in verse 38. They come to Jesus. They wake him up uh, down in the stern and say, Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? Uh, we're perishing. I, I've never been in a, a scary storm on a lake, um, certainly not in the ocean. Uh, in a boat, I'm sure it would be quite um, scary to me, largely because I have no experience with that kind of thing. Um, one of the elders in the church that we came from in Orlando um, grew up in uh, he grew up in Florida and um, on a lake and has a boat that he takes on lakes and on the ocean and um, he, he has been doing that all his life. He tells a story of once when he was uh, sailing on the intercoastal waterway with his wife. Um, they were in a sailboat they rented, and, and there's a dark thunderstorm that's, that's racing up the coast towards them. So they turn around, and they're trying to get back 
to the marina, uh, but it's it's getting closer, it's getting darker, and the lightning is chasing them up the chasing them up the intercoastal. Um, his wife is from Pennsylvania. She has much less experience with being on boats and being in storms, and so she's quite terrified as he describes it. And so he's looking for a way to reassure her, and he sees on the little beach in the intercoastal there is a, a flock of birds out eating, a bunch of egrets or something. And he says, he says, look, look at the birds. The birds aren't stupid. They're you know they're still out eating. They're fine. And so you know we still have a little bit of time. And at that moment. Lightning struck the beach right there, and the birds went. <laughs> several of them. So that didn't didn't particularly help uh, her fear. Well, one of the things that highlights the, the severity of this storm is that we know that several of the disciples were professional fishermen. Right? They grew up on the lake. They grew up on this lake. Uh, here, and they think they're going to die. And so uh, it, it seems we can presume uh, that this is as bad or maybe the worst storm that they've ever seen, as they think that, that they're, they're going to die. They, they, again, finally come to Jesus telling him they're perishing, we're dying, we're going to be lost. Uh, don't you even care? So verse 39, uh, Jesus gets up, rebukes the wind, and says to the sea, Hush, be still. And the wind died down and became perfectly calm. And he's rebuked the weather, and then he turns and offers a gentle rebuke to his disciples. Verse 40. He said to them, Why are you afraid? Do you still have no faith? Now, in light of how severe it seems this storm must have been, that these professional fishermen thought they were going to die, that maybe seems like a bit of a harsh question, harsh questions for Jesus to ask. Uh, why are you afraid? Uh, why do you have no faith? In one sense, it was quite understandable that they were scared, that they were afraid. It, it, was, it must have been a terrible storm. It threatened loss, even, even threatened their lives. But clearly, Jesus wanted the disciples to know that they were not to fear the storm. In, in seeing Jesus rebuke the storm, and it, it instantly stopped, they were to know that they were not wrong in going to him, right? But they were wrong in their frantic hysteria and assuming the worst and assuming that Jesus was unaware or didn't care uh, what they were experiencing. Uh, certainly he's not calling them to act like everything is fine or have no emotional response to this, this situation at all, but to come to him with trust and confidence and not, not in accusation or doubt about who he was. Well, you may not have, have uh, been in a storm like that on, on the water. Maybe someone here has. Uh, but God has led you into and through other, other storms, if you will, uh, scary things. Um, God doesn't say that you shouldn't grieve hard things, even that you shouldn't hate the consequences of evil uh, in the world. But, but God, through his word, essentially asks, and, and all of his promises and, and revealing himself essentially asks you the same question, gives you the same test. Where is your faith? Where is your fear? Uh, whether it's in, in a time of illness or brokenness in your family or, or a loss of job or financial crisis, uh, realize the scriptures call you not to fear these things. Acknowledge them as evil, cry out to God, but not in, not in uncertain fear. Uh, these are these are commands. It's it's uh, through a story here, but also they're explicit commands to the people of God: do not fear. 
Uh, do not be anxious. Right? And those are those are commands, difficult commands, but they're commands because they're they're possible by the grace of God. And they're not only commands. We can think of these these. Uh, commands in the Bible, do not fear, do not be anxious, as, as gracious invitations as well of, of God uh, to freedom from those life-controlling, emotion-controlling fears. Uh, if, if Christ is your Savior, he is with you. You have no ultimate reason to fear. There's not justification for, for despairing anxiety uh, in your life. Well, let's look, look secondly, just briefly, at where this where this kind of trust of God would come from, where uh, in part what the Bible calls the fear of the Lord, uh, that trusting reverence of God uh, comes from. So looking at number two in your outline and letter A, that, that kind of trust comes first from knowing that Jesus is sovereign over the storm, that Jesus is sovereign over the storm. Uh, again and again, the disciples' lack of faith uh, through the Gospels is wrapped up in the question of, of who Jesus really is. Right? And their lack of understanding of, of who it really was that was with them. Um, there, there's a direct relationship between the disciples' faith and what it was and, and who they really believe Jesus to be. And that, that's brought in, in in verse 41, how this story concludes here. When their response is, who then is this? That's their question about Jesus. How long has Jesus been with them now? Uh, we don't know exactly, but, but for a while they've seen him doing miracles. They've listened, listened to him teaching publicly and explaining to them privately. And they're still asking, who then is this? And that question at this point goes unanswered. The, the, only, uh, the only answers to that question uh, repeatedly and until chapter 9, they repeatedly come from demons. The demons immediately identify Jesus. His disciples keep wondering and learning and struggling with this question, who then is this? And that, that question unanswered, uh, again, leaves you to consider that. Uh, leading up, uh, again, to the confession of, of Peter later on. You are the Christ of God. Uh, no, note what this story reveals about Jesus. He immediately commands this terrible storm and wind, and it's, it's immediately uh, silent. There's no natural explanation for that. Um, in the Old Testament, over and over again, uh, it, it, it's attributed that the authority over the weather and thunder and earthquakes and waves and so on is attributed to Yahweh, to God himself. Um, there were instances here and there where God, through prophets, affected the weather in, in various ways, but uh, in, in the miracles of Jesus were being pointed beyond someone who's simply a prophet. There's no prophet to whom is attributed so many uh, miracles in, in, in so many spheres, you know, calming the weather, rebuking the weather, uh, healing the blind, uh, raising the dead, uh, and so on. Um, there are lots of people who can fix different problems, right? If you, have a, if you have a leak, you call a plumber and he'll fix it for you. Um, if you're sick, you call a doctor and he'll be able to fix it for you. Uh, but no one can fix or change the weather. So. The disciples are seeing Jesus as, as the divine Son of God, the divine Messiah. And so he's sovereign over the storm. And recall, Jesus is the one who, who led them into this storm um, at the beginning. And, and he used it both for his purposes and, and he had complete command over it to deliver the disciples uh, through it. Um, the same is true for you. That, that's not to say that uh, God keeps you from 
storms, so to speak, difficult, scary things, but, but they belong to him. They belong to him. He's sovereign over them. You belong to Jesus. There's, like same with the disciples, there's a direct relationship for you between your faith and who you really believe Jesus is. Whatever you can say about him or, or know intellectually about him. What you really believe about him. In Psalm 27, uh, the psalmist gives sort of the ideal statement of putting these things together. Who who God really is and what that means for our faith and our fear. So Psalm 27 begins, The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the stronghold of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? The implied answer is nothing. Right? No one. The disciples are still, still learning that, that it's the God of Psalm 27 that's in the boat with them. That's what Jesus wants them to recognize. And Notice, too, how the disciples' fear is, is redirected in this, this story. First, they're terrified of the storm. We're perishing. We're going to die. But look how the story ends. Jesus rebukes the storm, rebukes his disciples. Then in 40, verse 41, it says, they became very much afraid. Now, everything's calm now. The disciples became afraid again. They're afraid in response to Jesus and his authority. And, and in the Gospels, there's this... This theme over and over again showing us the response of people to, to the powerful work of God through Jesus, uh, especially in terms of fear and amazement. So if we go back to the beginning of Luke's gospel, uh, before Mark uh, takes up the story, Zechariah sees an angel. He tells him about John the Baptist and says fear fell upon him. And then later in that chapter, Zechariah's speech comes back. He names John um, and uh, it says fear came on all their friends. And Luke chapter 2, the angels appeared to the shepherds. And it says they were filled with fear. And Mark chapter 1, Jesus casts out a demon. And we read they were all amazed. So they questioned, saying, what is this? Mark chapter 2, Jesus heals a paralytic. It says they were all amazed and glorified God, saying, we never saw anything like this. Uh, Luke 7, which is right before the, the Jesus calming the sea in, in Luke's account, Jesus raises a boy from the dead and says, Fear seized them all, and they glorified God, saying, A great prophet has risen among us. God has visited his people. So seeing the power of God is not to leave anyone unaffected. Right, and for the disciples, it would only be when they have the, the fear of the Lord, this, this godly, biblical, reverent awe redirected towards Jesus, that, that he is in control, he is judge, he alone has the power to direct weather and history and anything. It's only then that they would really trust him. It's only when the thing that's driving them is what they know about Jesus rather than their circumstances. They, they needed to be shaken and, and alarmed and utterly humbled by the divine authority uh, paired with, with his loving care of them uh, to really trust him, uh, to not fear. And, and so I want to challenge you this morning. What is, what is controlling your emotions? What's, what's driving your fear? Uh, maybe it has to do with your health or other circumstances. Uh, maybe the cable news cycle, the fear-mongering of Fox News or the fear-mongering of CNN. Right? Have you stood in awe uh, of the power and the authority and the love of Jesus? Uh, really, have you been alarmed or unnerved or shaken 
by it, like, like the disciples seem to be here. And um, thinking about the total power and sovereignty of Jesus, and it's to have that experience along with knowing the, the absolute unconditional commitment and love that he has for you uh, that, that allows you to trust him and not to fear. It's not by thinking positive thoughts or uh, sort of generally believing that everything will turn out okay in the end. Right? That won't sustain you. Uh, the Psalms call us over and over again to fear God and be in awe in a way that leads us to praise him uh, and, and trust him. We um, sang this morning from Psalm 33. It says, Let all the earth fear the Lord, let the inhabitants of the world stand in awe of him. Uh, last week we sang from Psalm 22, You who fear the Lord, praise him. Right? Biblical fear of the Lord leads to, to praising God, worshiping him. All of you glorify him, stand in awe of him. It, it's only with that sort of astonishment, the sovereignty and the authority, together with the love of Jesus, uh, that you'll be able to trust him, face storms. And God uses these storms to teach you as he did the disciples. Um, here's uh, from uh, J.C. Ryle's commentary on, on Mark. I'll use J.C. Ryle for Jonathan this morning. Um, by affliction, he says, he teaches us many precious lessons, which without it we would never learn. By affliction, he shows us our emptiness and weakness, draws us to the throne of grace, and purifies our affections, weans us from the world, and makes us long for heaven. In the resurrection morning, we shall all say, it is good for me that I was afflicted. That's from Psalm 119. Secondly, this, this kind of trust comes from knowing that Jesus is with you in the storm. That Jesus is with you in the storm. Of course, the disciples had Jesus physically with them there in the boat. And that should have given them more confidence, should have given them um, complete confidence. But uh, at first it seemed to them they were tackling this danger without him, that he didn't, he didn't care um, what was happening to them. But in fact, Jesus was with them and was uh, in control. And that's certainly many lessons there for, for you as well. And the scriptures make that promise over and over again. And maybe we're, we're too used to some of those promises. We need to not hear them as, as just platitudes or things that we're used to. But hear, hear and believe that promise that God is with you. Uh, hear it from Isaiah 43, uh, for example. God says to his people, Fear not, for I have redeemed you. There's that command again. Do not fear. I have redeemed you. I have called you by name. You are mine. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And through the rivers, they shall not overwhelm you. When you walk through fire, you shall not be burned, and the flames shall not consume you. For I am the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. That's not a promise there that you won't face hardship. It, that passage assumes that you will. But the, the waves will come over you. You will go through fire. Right? But none of these things will change your relationship with the Lord. It doesn't change his promises. And we have, again, opportunity to sing this comfort often in the Psalms. And again, we should be encouraged not to just sing familiar platitudes, but to think of what we're singing and believe. We sang Psalm 23 just a few minutes ago. Right, what do we sing? Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, even when I face the possibility of death, I will fear no evil. Why? For you are with me. For you are with me. 
We'll sing in just, just a moment here, Psalm 46, which begins, God is our refuge and strength, a very present help, right? and with us help in time of trouble. Therefore, we will not fear. All right, that's, that's the confession that we're going to sing in just a minute here. Do we believe what we're singing? Lord, because you are with me, I will not fear. And consider Jesus' last words that he left with his disciples at the end of Matthew's Gospel. It was his promise, I am with you always uh, to the end of the age. That should be our great comfort as well. And then, then thirdly, finally, this trust comes from knowing that Jesus has gone through the storm. Um, you have a Savior who's not above your experience, but has gone through this life. Um, sufferings and pains and exhaustions and temptations. He had to cry out to God. He had to pray to the Father. He had to wait on the Father. Uh, he was put to death. He, he received the full wrath of God for, for your sins. And so in a sense, Jesus went through the one storm that, that you and I could not handle. Uh, right? The one that would destroy you and condemn you forever. Uh, he took upon himself, and he knows and loves you. Um, in one sense, we sang Psalm 42 earlier as well, uh, which, which speaks figuratively of God's waves uh, crashing over uh, the psalmist. In one sense, only Jesus can fully sing those words. Psalm 42, verse 7 says, Deep calls to deep at the roar of your waterfalls. All of your breakers and all of your waves have gone over me. That was Jesus' experience for, in your place. So know that whenever you face Jesus as sovereign and trustworthy, that he faces it with you, uh, having gone through that, that storm himself. And so trust him. Uh, ask yourself what it would really mean, what difference it would make if you were to really and truly trust God uh, in your situation, as Jesus calls his disciples to in this passage. Let's pray. Father in heaven, uh, we thank you again this morning for your word, and um, we thank you for the the honest way that you show the the weakness uh, and inconsistencies of the disciples, and for the ways that we honestly see uh, our lives and our faith reflected in them. We thank you for the the patient uh, and gracious. Um, sanctifying teaching of, of Jesus, of them, and of us. Uh, we pray that you would uh, bring us to the place that Jesus was, was challenging and bringing uh, the apostles in, in truly knowing and believing who he was and his presence with them. Uh, let us believe that uh, in our lives. Let it uh, make a difference in, in how we think and how we uh, encourage others uh, in how we trust you and obey you. We pray all this in Christ's name and for his sake. Amen.